Unlucky episode 13 of Criminal Broads, the true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law that is so very on brand today. Because unless you're living under a gravestone, <laughs> today is Halloween. Yes, it is October 31st, 2018. And we're here today to get a little extra spooky, a little spookier than we normally get on Criminal Broads. Um, what are you doing for Halloween? What are you dressed up as? Have you dressed up already? What are your thoughts on Halloween? What do you think the origins of Halloween were? These are questions I have. Feel free to email me. Me, I did not grow up celebrating Halloween, which might be shocking uh, given the subject of my podcast. But yeah, my three younger siblings and I did not celebrate Halloween as children. And so... I think that we, in a way, as outsiders, as non-participants, we got the experience of the true Halloween. Because let me tell you something, when you're not like celebrating Halloween with the other little kids, you see Halloween for the scary thing that it is. We were so traumatized by Halloween. I hope my mom and dad aren't listening to this and I don't want them to feel guilty. But Oh my gosh, we would walk around our neighborhood and our neighbors were very enthusiastic Halloweeners and they would have, um, let's say, they would have shrouded corpses hanging from the trees in their front yard or gravestones with rotting zombies emerging from the ground. I mean, yeah, I know these were probably like plastic things that they bought at Home Depot, but as a child, we couldn't even look at these houses. We were so terrified. And don't even get me started on the time when a young boy came by in a mask with a secret button that when he pushed it, blood streamed down his face. We, my whole family is still traumatized by that to this day. We are collectively traumatized. My mother screamed in his face, which actually, now that I think about it, probably also traumatized him. Anyway, today we're going to talk about, um, we're going to deep dive into a broad subject, a big subject, a scary subject. We're going to talk about criminal broads on five different continents spanning about four centuries and i would like to give a shout out to the itunes reviewer brit reads who left me a review thank you brit you're the best and said she would be interested in an episode about elizabeth bathory now i love i, I wanted i wanted to give my girl brit what she was asking for but i was torn because i've written about elizabeth bathory in my book lady killers and i didn't want to just I don't know. I didn't want to I didn't want to recycle a chapter and cheat you out of some new hashtag content. So that's why I got the idea for this episode. Um, we're going to have some Bathory, but we're going to go a little broader than that, a little deeper than that. And there's going to be one theme that links all these criminal broads. And that theme is, of course, blood. <laughs>
Picture yourself in a small town in Hungary, right around the beginning of the 1600s. You're a humble, hardworking peasant, kind of superstitious, but you're mostly someone who minds their own business. There is one weird thing about your hometown, however. There's a huge, gothic-looking castle, and when the sun is just right, the castle casts a shadow over your house and you can't help but shiver. The woman who lives in that castle is odd. She's very rich and very beautiful. Like many Hungarian noblewomen, she prides herself on the fact that her skin is so translucent you can see the blue veins beneath it. She's powerful but lonely, a widow who doesn't seem to have any real friends. And there are lots of rumors about her in your small town. Your friends swear that they've heard things, the screams of young girls, the sounds of bodies being thrown over the castle walls, <laughs> but you have no reason to believe those stories are anything more than gossipy, superstitious speculation. And then, one night, you're walking home when you see it. A shape is moving in the darkness, coming down from the castle on the hill, racing towards you with a strange, uneven gait. And it's, oh god, it's screaming. As it draws closer and closer, you see that it's a girl, a very young girl, a peasant just like you, with eyes that look like they'll never sleep again. She's bruised and bloody, and she's screaming nonsense about torture and death and witchcraft. Well, it's nonsense, right? It has to be nonsense. And then you see why she was running so strangely. She has a knife stuck in her foot. It's still quivering there as though it's alive. Welcome to the town of Chaktice, a village in modern-day Slovakia that used to be part of the Kingdom of Hungary where, during the early 1600s, a crazed countess named Ershebet Bathory was at the height of her power and her madness. Erzsébet, we'll use her English name and call her Elizabeth, was born in 1560 to one of the most powerful clans in Central Europe, and though she was educated and pampered and given all the opportunities that you'd expect a young countess to have, she was also given a bit of a genetic curse. Like so many other powerful people throughout history, Hungarian nobles liked to marry each other so as to keep their power consolidated, but there weren't really enough Hungarian nobles for this to work out on a healthy genetic level. Yes, these nobles were a bit inbred, and this resulted in a lot of health problems. The author Raymond T. McNally says that Elizabeth's relatives would write letters to each other in which they often complained of, quote, symptoms of epilepsy, madness, and other psychological disturbances. We don't know for sure what Elizabeth suffered from, but it's likely that whatever plagued her relatives also plagued her. At age 14, she married a teenage boy named Ferenc Nadozhdi, who was from a slightly less powerful clan than hers, and this marriage brought with it a huge amount of responsibility. The two of them made up a formidable duo, and since Ferenc soon made a career out of fighting the Ottomans, Elizabeth was responsible for overseeing their many, many castles, their acres and acres of land, and all their vulnerable young servants. Many of these servants were healthy, nubile peasant girls whose families sent them to work for Elizabeth in the hopes that they'd have, 
well, if not a better life, at least some form of income. There weren't a lot of options for peasants back then. In fact, these servants were more or less the property of Elizabeth, and while the law was full of rules and regulations that protected her, there was really nothing in place whatsoever to protect them. Now, Hungarian nobles were certainly not afraid to punish their servants in ways that would appall us today, but Elizabeth wasn't your average cruel late 1500s mistress. She disciplined her servants with techniques that were so sadistic, so unnecessary, and so weird that even her contemporaries blanched. She had a flair for performative punishments and seemed to enjoy flexing her artistic muscles, if you will, when it came to her abuses. For example, if she suspected a girl of stealing a coin, she would heat up that same coin in the fire and then use it to brand the girl's hand. If a girl made a sewing mistake, Elizabeth would snatch the needle she was using and prick her with it. It was symbiotic cruelty, feeding on the acts that inspired it. It demonstrates something very chilling about Elizabeth. She was cruel, but she was also imaginative. Her husband did nothing to stop her. For the most part, he wasn't even there. He was a career soldier, as I've mentioned, and like his wife, he loved to make people feel pain. He would torture his enemies so brutally, one story says he liked to behead them and then toss their heads into the air so he could catch them on the tip of his sword, that he gained the terrifying nickname the Black Knight of Hungary. When he did come home, he and Elizabeth seemed to encourage each other. It would have been romantic, the way they carved out time to spend on their shared hobbies, if it wasn't so bloody. He taught Elizabeth to put pieces of oiled paper between the toes of a disobedient servant girl and then light the paper on fire. This would result in the poor girl kicking her legs in agony as sparks flew and flesh sizzled, a sight that the two of them must have found exhilarating, maybe even arousing. They called it star kicking. If power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, then I think it's fair to say that sometimes absolute power also makes people very, very strange. It warps them. It takes the worst parts of their personalities and dials them up to 11, magnifying and encouraging all their quirks. Elizabeth seemed to get stranger and more dangerous as she got older, possibly due to some toxic combination of untreated mental illness, encouragement by her husband, and social stressors like managing her vast lands and dealing with her contemporaries and even corresponding with the king of Hungary who owed her money. That's how powerful she and her husband were. She hated socializing and would inevitably de-stress after some social function or another by beating up her servants or, say, forcing them to stand outside in the cold and pouring icy water over them. Her stressors only increased when Ferenc died unexpectedly in 1604, which was a blow to their income. After all, he used to send her streams of treasures from his wartime marauding. Also, Elizabeth was 44 now, and there are rumors that one other stressor really put her over the edge, the deterioration of her legendary youthful beauty. She certainly chose to surround herself with youthful beauty, though. In fact, she was hiring so many new servant girls that she was starting to run out of peasant daughters to hire. Yes, her staff turnover rate was disturbingly high because for years, Elizabeth had been pushing her torture too far and her girls kept ending up dead. 
What had perhaps started as a penchant for punishment had turned into a full-fledged obsession, and she even had a little torture squad of creepy older servants who would help her in her killings. Now, after her husband's death, she did something that we've seen so many other serial killers do in the centuries since. She started to get messy, started to push things too far. She was killing so many people that she didn't bother burying them all, and rumors started flying in the villages around her castles. Pastors grew suspicious about all the funerals they were asked to do. And villagers couldn't help but notice that when her girls came into town on errands, they were bruised, blistered, burnt. One claimed to have seen a girl flee from the castle with a knife still in her foot. But it wasn't until Elizabeth started luring the daughters of noblemen to her castles and killing them that the king of Hungary was forced to do something about her. Authorities raided her castle in Chaktice and allegedly caught her mid-torture, with the bodies of dead and dying girls scattered heartlessly around her castle grounds. She was never put on trial for this, because her family didn't want her to take the stand and embarrass them all with her madness, but the servants who helped her torture were themselves tortured and then confessed to an unbelievable list of atrocities, beatings, burnings, starvation, a time Elizabeth put her fingers inside a girl's mouth and ripped it open, a time Elizabeth bit a chunk of flesh from the breast of another servant. Most of the servants who had assisted her were executed, and Elizabeth herself was walled up in a tiny room in her castle for the rest of her life. She died a few years later, and one account reports that the last thing she did was lie in her bed and sing to herself. Noble Hungarian society was so shaken by this debacle that the king forbade them from even mentioning Elizabeth's name. Of course, when people are told not to talk about something, they begin whispering about that same thing, and so the rumors about what Elizabeth did and why she did it became absolutely out of control, and today it's difficult to separate all the factual blood from the fictional. One rumor that sprung up was that Elizabeth had tortured all those girls because she wanted to collect their virginal blood and bathe in it in order to make herself look younger. One person quoted her as saying, it is my duty to be good to my husband and make myself beautiful for him. God showed me how to do this, so I would be unwise not to take advantage of this opportunity. Another version of this myth said that after her husband's death, Elizabeth started dating a strapping younger man, and one day, when the two of them were out riding together, they passed a hideous older woman. Elizabeth's lover recoiled from the old hag in disgust, which made Elizabeth paranoid about aging. And then, one day, when a servant girl was helping her dress, the girl made a mistake and Elizabeth slapped her so hard that the girl's blood splattered her face. When Elizabeth wiped the blood off, she realized that she was glowing. This blood-as-youth serum rumor has proven to be extraordinarily enduring. Today, the idea of Elizabeth as a blood-obsessed nymphomaniac is everywhere from fan art to black metal songs to a character on American Horror Story Hotel, played by Lady Gaga, to an article on the Ripley's Believe It or Not website titled, Have You Heard of the OG of All-Female Vampires, Elizabeth Bathory? Bloodbaths were never mentioned in the trial transcripts, though. 
Instead, the rumor was first officially written down about 100 years after Elizabeth died, when a Jesuit scholar discovered the transcripts and wrote a book about them, called Tragica Historia, in which he includes the bloodbath idea. Even though the trial transcripts actually mention that blood from the torture sessions would pool on the floor, in other words, no one was collecting it for a bath, the rumor stuck around. It was a good story. It was an eerie story. An aging mad woman using young blood to keep her skin creepily translucent. So people kept repeating it and expounding on it and believing it. After all, this was a time in Eastern Europe when people were already starting to think about how disturbing and awful it would be if humans started doing weird things with other humans' blood. The idea that there are creepy things out there that are interested in our blood has been with us for thousands and thousands of years, and some of these earliest proto-vampires, if you will, were female. They weren't, however, human. The ancient Assyrians feared a demonic goddess named Lamashtu who would come to your house at night and steal your baby to suck up its blood and munch on its bones. A similar figure in ancient Jewish texts is Lilith, who also stole away infants and was used to explain away miscarriages and the deaths of young babies. The Greeks had Lamia, a mother who became a monster after her children were killed and went on to eat children herself. All of these demons had animal qualities, talons, wings, the tail of a snake, and all of them were terrifying visions of a mother gone wrong, a mother that swoops through the night and slurps up baby blood instead of protecting the baby against the horrors that swoop through the night. Over the centuries, the idea of a female monster who drinks blood wended its way into almost every culture. The Mananagals of the Philippines are hideous females who, come nightfall, split their bodies in half and fly around as a horrible severed torso with bat wings that can, among other things, suck out a fetus from its mother's womb. Travel west along the South China Sea to Malaysia and you'll find the Penangalan, a beautiful midwife who is cursed by the devil and is now a vampire who flies around at night as a head with a bunch of entrails hanging down from her neck. When she has finished sucking blood, she comes home and soaks her intestines in vinegar in order to fit them back into the human body that she left behind. During the day, she walks around looking for all the world like a normal woman, except that if you get close enough, you can smell the vinegar. In Trinidad, mothers tell their children about the Sukuyon, a wrinkled old woman who strips off her skin at night and flies around as a ball of fire, sucking blood from her victims. In Ghana, members of the Ewe tribe tell stories about a female vampire who seems a lot less scary. She's called an Adze, and she turns into a firefly before creeping into your room, until you realize that she just might be a metaphor for the most dangerous animal on Earth, the disease-bearing mosquito. You can see the common threads that link all of these folkloric figures. Each one of them is a warped version of a woman, whether that's a woman who's split in half, a woman whose entrails are exposed, a woman who can shuck off her skin, a woman who can turn into an animal, or simply a woman who sees babies as food. <laughs> 
While you might be tempted to conclude that female vampires are just misogynist legends, I don't think that's what's going on in this case. I think that vampires, like zombies and, say, demon-possessed kids, represent not necessarily a fear or hatred of a specific sort of human, but a fear of things that aren't quite human. A fear of things that can shapeshift and upset what we perceive as the natural order. A young woman isn't supposed to be able to tear her body in half and fly away into the night. A mother isn't supposed to eat someone else's babies. An old woman isn't supposed to shuck off her skin and turn into fire. A countess isn't supposed to bathe in blood. All of these things are scary because they look like us until, in one horrifying split second, we realize that they're not actually behaving the way a human should. The idea of the vampire has always hinged on that one action, that hideous image of something that looks like a human turning on the human, sucking out the life of the human in a gesture that looks horribly like a kiss on the neck. Now, we haven't talked about full-on vampires yet. The idea of the vampire as specifically an undead human that feeds on the blood of the living is a distinctly Eastern European one. The online etymology dictionary does note that there are, quote, scattered English accounts of night-walking, blood-gorged, plague-spreading undead corpses from as far back as 1196. But for the most part, the idea of the vampire, as you think of it when I say the word vampire, fully came into being around the 16 and 1700s in Eastern Europe, and the word vampire entered the French, German, and English languages around that time from the Hungarian word vampire. So just to reiterate, while every culture and every century has feared their particular brand of bloodsucker, we can thank the Hungarians, the Croatians, the Romanians, the Slovakians, and everyone else from that area for the terrifying capital V vampire. Back in the 1700s, though, the vampire was a bloated figure with purplish skin, the result of sucking up so much blood, and Eastern Europeans were seeing these figures everywhere. In fact, the region became infected with a full-blown vampire panic, and people began digging up graves and driving stakes through the hearts of corpses that they suspected weren't actually dead. It's helpful to remember that a lot of these panics happened in villages and rural areas where people tended to be more folkloric, more superstitious, and where life was harsher. People didn't understand what contagion was back then. They didn't know that a disease could spread through the air and infect more than one person. When they saw someone die and then saw more people die, they couldn't pinpoint some airborne virus. No, they saw something that looked supernatural, as though something was wandering through their village at night, infecting them all. And then there's the whole business of what exactly happens to the body after death, which is also something that's strange and easily misunderstood. Many scholars have postulated that our fear of vampires originated in our deep confusion about decomposition. If you were a Croatian villager in the mid-1600s, say, who assumed that dead people just kind of looked like sleeping versions of living people, think how you'd feel if one day you saw a dead body with dark liquid coming out of its mouth. Or you heard a dead body make a strange shrieking sound all of a sudden. Or you saw that the nails and hair on a corpse looked longer than they were the day before. 
How would you know that decomposing bodies sometimes drip liquid or fill with gas, or that skin shrinks back so that hair and nails look longer? You wouldn't know any of that. You would see something that looked like it had just been drinking blood, that looked like it was alive. And you would think, my God, we have to stop this monster. jump ahead to a time that feels a bit more modern. The United States of America in New England in the 1890s. Picture yourself there. Let's say you're a villager again, but this time you're a stoic, flinty, thrifty Yankee living in Rhode Island with a quilt on your bed and a braided rug on the floor. You're probably Presbyterian, Episcopalian, or Methodist, You're not as straight-laced morally as your grandfather was, but you're also not totally immune to the influences of, shall we say, the old world. Still, you know how the world works. It's been about 300 years since Elizabeth Bathory was singing herself to death in her gothic castle. You don't believe in Hungarian countesses taking bloodbaths or women with bat wings. This is the modern world now. This is America. Still, There's a lot to fear in your world, a lot of mystery. Like your ancestors before you and their ancestors before them, death still feels like a dark power that comes and goes as it pleases, that no one can predict or control. And your town is seeing a lot of death lately. In fact, one-fourth of all the deaths in New England right now are happening because of the same thing, consumption. A disease that consumes people consumes entire families. You've seen them waste away. Their cheeks get dangerously flushed, and their eyes are sunken, and they cough up bright spots of blood. When you visit your friend or your neighbor who has it, you can't help thinking that it doesn't look like they're sick. It looks like something is draining their life away. Whatever's going on, whatever that thing is, you'd do anything to keep it from hurting your family. In 1882, a Rhode Island family called the Browns began contracting consumption, which today we call tuberculosis. Their mother died first, and their older sister Mary died shortly after, at the age of 20. And then their brother, Edwin, got sick and moved away to Colorado Springs, hoping that the trip would cure him. By 1892, the younger sister, Mercy, had come down with consumption when she was only 19. She wasted away at horrifying speed, and in the meantime, her brother Edwin came home, also close to death. Before long, Mercy Brown passed away, the third death in a single family with a fourth glimmering on the horizon. You can imagine how terrified the father, George Brown, was of losing yet another child. But he wasn't the only one afraid. Neighbors who had watched this happen were paranoid that whatever was killing the Browns would then move on to their households and begin killing them. They pulled George Brown aside and said, We have an idea, but you're not going to like it. There's a chance, they said, that one of your dead family members is a vampire. 
Now, this might sound ridiculous to us, but these neighbors believed it. To them, it seemed entirely possible that one of the Browns had come back from beyond the grave and was now sucking the lifeblood from Edwin. Maybe it wasn't true, they said, but wasn't it important to at least check? There was only one thing to do, they said. Dig the women up and see if any of them had fresh blood in their hearts. George Brown had to agree. He must have been utterly horrified at the suggestion, but this was bigger than saving his son's life. He was under real pressure from the community at large to figure out what was happening, because if his wife or one of his daughters was a vampire, she might kill the neighbors too. He agreed to the digging, but refused to be there. On March 17, 1892, a group of men, plus a doctor and a journalist, went to the graveyard to dig up the three female bodies. The first two bodies, the mother and older sister, were mostly bones, which means that they were not vampires. After all, they'd been dead for about a decade. Bones were what you'd expect to find. But when they dug up Mercy Brown, they were horrified at what they saw. Some accounts say that her cheeks were flushed, looking deliciously alive. Some accounts say that her body was lying on its side or was face down, as though she'd been moving around in there. Everyone agrees that she was barely decomposed at all, which must have made a horrifying contrast with the bones of her mother and sister. But the worst was yet to come. The doctor performed a makeshift autopsy on her, and when he opened up her heart, he found that there was still blood in it. Now, Mercy Brown had only been dead a few months, and it was still winter, meaning that the cold would have preserved her somewhat. The doctor himself said that finding some clotted blood in the heart at this stage was nothing unusual, and he even noted that her lungs looked like the lungs of someone who'd had tuberculosis. But his protests were lost on the superstitious villagers, who were looking at the suspiciously lifelike corpse of a woman who sort of looked like she came alive at night and went around sucking human blood. It was clear to them that they were dealing with a vampire, and so they burned her heart and her liver mixed the ashes with water, and gave the drink to her sick brother Edwin, hoping that he would be cured by his sister's final destruction. The cure didn't work, and Edwin died shortly afterward. Mercy wasn't the only woman suspected to be a vampire in 1800s Rhode Island. In fact, the practice of exhuming female bodies extended to Connecticut, and there was even an exhumation of a potential female vampire in Chicago, but she's the most famous. Today, people say that she appears on a bridge in the region, and you'll only know she's there because you'll suddenly smell roses. She also appears to people who are dying, they say, and she tells them that dying isn't so bad. People leave coins and mementos and flowers on her grave and little notes talking to her. Some people leave tape recorders to see if she'll say anything to them. And because she's famous, her gravestone is set up so that people can't steal it. There's a metal band around the stone, and that band connects to a post that goes down into the ground. In other words, her gravestone itself has been turned into a metal stake, plunging down into the earth, toward the place where her heart used to be.
there. <laughs> Careful. You might hurt someone with that blade. Ooh, such ferocity in your eyes, little hunter. Such anger and disdain for me. And I haven't even introduced myself. I am Countess Stefania Swan, though I doubt you have the common decency to kneel before me. And what would your name be? Ooh, the silent type. So mysterious and brooding. That was a clip from a YouTube video called Vampire ASMR Roleplay, Meeting the Countess. ASMR means Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response, and it can be used for anything from relaxation to eroticism. The vampire ASMR videos tend toward the latter. This one has a whopping 69,117 views with comments like, I'm yours, my beautiful vampire princess. The sexualized vampire, male or female, is a far cry from the demonic creatures of ancient folklore or from the bodies dug up by grave robbers in Croatia and New England. In fact, it's also a far cry from Elizabeth Bathory, whose legend is extremely sexualized today, but who, during her lifetime, shocked and repulsed and terrified her villagers and was nothing like the Countess in the video you just heard. So how did we get here? How did we get to vampires whose danger is so appealing that we invite them to come and whisper into our ears? The female vampire as we know her today educated, suave, and probably showing a not insignificant amount of cleavage, is a product not of real life but of artistic liberties. She emerged back in Europe about a century before Mercy Brown began wasting away of tuberculosis, and she emerged in fiction and in poetry. In the year 1797, both the German poet Johann Wolfgang von Goethe and the English poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge wrote poems about seductive undead women must have been something in the water back then. Male vampires were also getting dangerously sexy, like in the 1819 publication of a short story by John Polidori called The Vampire, in which a mysterious nobleman marries a girl and leaves her drained of blood on her wedding night. Edgar Allan Poe was starting to pack his stories with spooky-eyed women who drift up from the dead to reclaim their lovers. And we got our first famous lesbian vampire with the 1872 novella Carmilla by Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu, which was quite the piece of queer erotica, though no one admitted it at the time, featuring a gorgeous gal named Carmilla who had a penchant for, shall we say, nipping at the breasts of other young women? And then, of course, we got Dracula by Bram Stoker, published in 1897. His chilling Count Dracula is male, but Stoker drew copious inspiration from some of the female vampires we've discussed today. After his death, people found newspaper clippings about the Mercy Brown incident in his possessions and theorized that he may have based the character of Lucy on Mercy. Also, the writer Raymond T. McNally put forth a theory that Stoker read about Elizabeth Bathory in a collection of werewolf tales and based some of Dracula's characteristics, like the fact that blood made him look younger, on Elizabeth. I should say, though, that not everyone agrees with this theory. 
Regardless of where exactly Bram Stoker drew inspiration for his famous vampire, you can see how the figure of the vampire that we have today has a complicated root system, both in openly magical folklore and in the characters of real people, real women, who really walked the earth. If these lady vampires of poetry and novels were sexual, but also icy and mysterious and intriguing, the female vampire today risks becoming something of a joke. I don't think we're post-vampire, we probably never will be, but the idea that vampires are automatically sexy has become so prevalent, so campy, and so overdone that the vampire itself risks becoming cliché. Perhaps this is the result of knowing too much as a society. After all, we don't fear Lamia or Lamashtu anymore. We know that the mysterious consumption disease is caused by something we can grow in a lab or identify under a microscope. Mycobacterium tuberculosis, by the way. And we can even read very convincing theories that Elizabeth Bathory was totally innocent, never killed a soul, and was simply framed for being a powerful woman in a land of powerful men. The female vampire still pops up as a badass in movies like Underworld today, but as an archetype, generally, you might say she's lost her teeth. Just look at the site LingerieDiva.com, which offers up an entire selection of sexy vampire costumes, almost all of them pitched at women, where you'll find outfits titled Naughty Vampire Costume, Love Bite Vampire Costume, Bloodsucking Beauty, Le Vamp, Seductive Vamp, Voluptuous Vampire, Vampire Vixen, Fever Vampire Princess, Sexy Vampire Mistress, Vampire Temptress, which is not to be confused with Transylvanian Temptress, as the latter consists of a red and black miniskirt and corset, and the former consists of a red and black miniskirt and corset and a long red cape. And then there's my personal favorite, three-piece naughty vampire. Beneath all of these costumes, a bit of text reads, Take advantage of the popularity of lady vamps by dressing as a bloodsucker and go looking for a donor. Don't forget to top off your look with some accessories. Even if you're planning on staying in, a wig, hosiery, and false teeth will amp up your look and make his blood boil. The message is clear. Vampires are hot. Vampires are fun. Vampires are an easy way to catch a man. Vampires only wear miniskirts and corsets. And most importantly, vampires are nothing to fear. Nothing to fear whatsoever. Right? I regret to inform you that our world today is not totally free of real-life female vampires. If you page through the lurid tabloids who cover this sort of thing, you'll find several cases of criminal women who are, shall we say, a lot bloodier than your average murderess. These women are not undead creatures, but they are extraordinarily violent and disturbed criminals who have made no secret of the fact that they can and will and do drink human blood. In 1991, the country of Australia was shocked by a gory case that became known as the Lesbian Vampire Trial, when 25-year-old Tracy Wigington, who identified as a vampire, killed a 47-year-old man named Edward Baldock and allegedly satiated herself on his blood. Tracy and three other women, two of whom were her lovers, planned the murder while sipping champagne at a nightclub, 
after which they went hunting. They found the victim, who was walking home drunk, and took him to a deserted yacht club where Tracy stabbed him to death. And though none of the accomplices saw her drink his blood, one of them noted that she looked, quote, almost satisfied, like a person would look if they had just sat down to a three-course dinner. One of her lovers also noted that Tracy hated the sun and loathed mirrors. Tracy pled guilty and received a life sentence. After almost 23 years behind bars, she was released. In 2000, a German couple named Daniel and Manuela Ruda bonded over two horrific interests, neo-Nazism and the vampire lifestyle. Manuela, age 23, enjoyed sleeping in a coffin, collecting human skulls, decorating with art that featured hanged women, and writing lists of people she wanted to kill. She even had two of her teeth replaced with animal fangs. She claimed to have become a real vampire at a goth club in London, where she met a group of real vampires and drank human blood with them. She'd met Daniel, a car parts salesman, when he placed an ad in a magazine saying, Pitch Black Vampire Seeks Princess of Darkness Who Hates Everything and Everyone. She responded, I hate mankind and detest the light. In 2001, they murdered their friend, Frank Hackert, by bludgeoning him, stabbing him 66 times, and cutting a pentagram into his skin. They then collected his blood in a bowl and drank it. Manuela was given 13 years in a mental facility. Daniel was given 15. And just last week, two girls in Florida were arrested for planning to kill 15 of their classmates and drink their blood, though for the record, these girls didn't mention vampirism but said that they were doing it so they'd join Satan in hell. The girls were 11 and 12. Now, reading about these cases doesn't make us think that anyone involved is actually a vampire, right? We think instead that these people are deranged, ill, delusional, evil, divorced from reality. We read about their fangs and their blood-sucking and think, how horrible that death can come so randomly and scarily to their poor victims. We don't think, oh wow, I guess vampires are real. But for centuries, people who were just like us thought that vampires were definitely real. Think back your ancestors. You're an Assyrian mother living thousands of years ago, worried that Lamashtu might come and kill your baby. You're a villager in Hungary in the early 1600s, afraid that a powerful woman might come and take your daughter from you and bathe in her blood. You're huddled in your bed in Trinidad, listening to the sound of the wind and wondering if it's really an old woman flying towards you, shaped like a fireball. You're a townsperson in Rhode Island, unable to keep from panicking when you see your friends and neighbors waste away as though something, someone, is sucking the life out of them. In a way, the vampire was always the easier explanation. Because then at least there was an order to things. A reason that people were dying. You have to imagine that when the men dug up Mercy Brown's body, and saw that her cheeks glowed with an unnatural flush. They felt horror, yes, but also a strange relief. Ah, there it was, the answer they'd been so desperately looking for. She was a vampire.
that's all for today, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, if you're listening to this on October 31st, 2018, the day it came out, and you live in New York City or feel like driving there tonight, um, I am doing a event at Word Brooklyn, a bookstore in Brooklyn. I'm going to be talking about female serial killers, so I would love to see you there. The event is at 7 p.m., and the address is 126 Franklin Street, Brooklyn, New York. Um, you can Google Word Brooklyn or find me personally on Instagram at Tori underscore underscore Telfer to know more about that. To those of you who aren't in New York or don't feel like coming out, I am with you in spirit, not in a creepy way. Thank you so much for listening. Again, thank you for the iTunes reviews. There are some new ones up. Ah, you guys are so nice. Um, very, very sweet people out there in this crazy world. So thank you. Um, I'll be posting some photos about the people I've talked about in this episode on Criminal Broads uh, at at Instagram. So Instagram.com slash Criminal Broads should get you there. And you can always email me criminalbroads at gmail.com or just get in touch through whatever medium you so desire to, um, if you have suggestions, critiques, women you want to see me cover, etc. Let's see, next week I've got an interview coming up with an author who has made a career out of writing about women who like really, 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 really bad men. So that'll be really interesting. Um, That was based on another reader suggestion, so thank you. And we'll talk about that in two weeks. Until then, have a lovely time and stay warm, stay safe. I'll talk to you later. Bye. What can I do? What can I say? After I've taken the blame You say you're through You'll go your way But I'll always feel just the same Maybe I'm right Maybe I'm wrong Loving you dear like I do If it's a crime Then I'm guilty It's all right. I've had my fill of you. For tonight, there's a room upstairs waiting for you, with damask drapes and blue roses by your bed, and locks on every window and door. Play by my rules, and I shall make your final days delicious. Disobey me, or try to flee and I'll have a new head on my battlements. Now sleep, fall into my arms and let my voice wash over you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.